Thank you. Well, good afternoon. It's great to be here with you again. I should press the record or is it going away? It's going away. We have on our computer at home a screenplay which scrolls through the photos that we have in our photo program. And I counted them up the other day, or actually I didn't count them up. I let the computer count them up. And we've had, at last count, over 50,000 pictures in our photo collection. I don't know if anyone can pop that. Part of it's explained probably because we've got three little kids and you take lots of pictures and we've got three little kids. So we've got pictures of overseas holidays in there, we've got pictures of family pictures on the beach, we've got pictures of uh, me and my wife on our wedding day, we've got pictures of our kids when they were born, we've got pictures of our friends, uh, we've even got pictures of that the kids have taken up each other's nostrils and in each other's ears as they like to do. We've got all sorts of fun and crazy pictures in this back collection of 50,000 photos. What I realised as I was watching these scrolls through on the computer screen the other day was that there are a whole lot of elements of my life over the last 10 or 15 years while I've been taking digital photos. Many events and circumstances of which there is absolutely no photo record. There's no picture, for example, of my family in tears at my grandmother's funeral. No picture of that whatsoever. There's no picture of my brother, my younger brother, 26 years old he was, utterly bald. Not just bald in a fifth kind of way, but utterly bald. All of his hair gone, looking gaunt and weak and sick because he's only going chemotherapy for a tumour that was growing in his throat. No picture of that. No record of that whatsoever, and yet it was such a significant event for our family. No pictures of my daughter, three months old she was, little Jemima Hope, full of life, a new start in the world, everything a parent could dream of, and there she was in the hospital on a feeding tube, up to her nose, into her throat, and down to her stomach for three months because she had severe gastro problems and was starving herself to death because they had to feed it to a few. No, no pictures of those moments whatsoever. Thankfully my brother and my daughter are fine, they've been healed. But as I was reflecting on this, I thought, why is it that we have so many pictures of so many other things and yet no pictures of these other events which are equally perhaps even more significant? And of course the answer is that those events are the painful events. The ones that are painful are the ones that we choose not to remember. There's something right about that, isn't it? Uh, if you're always focusing on what has been painful and difficult, then you live a pretty morbid existence. But cutting them out of our records, out of our memories, not engaging with them, not processing them, that, that's not healthy either, is it? Somehow we've got to come up with a way of engaging with these difficulties. Is it better just to go without? Let's do that. Somehow we've got to come up with a way of engaging with the difficult stuff in life. And for those of us who believe in God, and uh, according to the last poll, it's around 70% of us in Australia, for those of us who believe in God, we've got to come up with some kind of answer to the question of where is God in all of that? I've given you just some three small examples of some of the pain in my life over the last 10 years or so. Fairly minimal examples in the scheme of things. And I'm sure if we went around a room this size, there would be many, many stories. We could multiply them tens of times. 
of the kinds of pain that people suffer. And we, in this room, are amongst the most privileged in the world. If we went around the world and looked at the kind of pain that people suffer, then there are all sorts of stories, aren't there? Stories of death and suffering and destruction and disease. And the question for us today is, where is God in all of that? If we believe in God, we've got to come up with some kind of answer to that difficult question. And so that's our question here. What if God understood our pain? Does God understand our pain? Where is God in all of these painful things in life? Some people look at those rough experiences, those difficulties, those sources of pain, and come up to the conclusion that if God is there, then he must be distant and uninvolved and disinterested in the world. Bette Midler sings about it like this. You might remember the song if you uh, listen to retro music on the radio. God is watching us, another one. God is watching us. God is watching us, she says, from a distance. I don't think Bette Midler knew it, but in singing that song, in writing those words, if indeed she did write them, I'm not sure whether she stole them or she wrote them, but in singing that song, I don't think she realised she's actually been the most recent mouthpiece for a very old philosophy. Uh, I've never thought about Beck Miller as a philosopher much, but here she is. She's been the mouthpiece for a very old philosophy called Deism, which teaches exactly that. It's a philosophy that grew up in uh, Europe in the 17th and 18th centuries during the Enlightenment, which teaches exactly this, that there is a God and that he created the world, but he kind of set it up like a machine, perhaps like a watch, which he wound up and set in place the laws of nature and then he just let it keep ticking, let it run itself, and God backed off. And watches his creation, watches his world as it ticks away according to the laws of nature from a distance. And maybe one reason why that philosophy, that understanding about God might be attractive is because it helps us to make sense of where is God in the painful stuff in life. Because it gives you an answer, doesn't it? It says, well, God's distant. It's not his fault. He is disengaged. Other people look at the pain and the suffering in the world uh, and even in their own life and conclude something much harsher, much sadder. Uh, this is captured in a comic way here in this cartoon from one of my favourite cartoons, Gary Larson. You know, you're off the far side cartoons. Uh, this one is particularly dark though, unlike Larson most of the time. You might just be able to make it out. Here we've got God sitting at his computer. It's looking like a very... 80s computer, it's from that era, and he's got at his computer about to press the smite button to let the, um, the piano at his fall down on top of this poor goose who's walking along the road. And some people look at the pain and the suffering in the world and they conclude that God, if he's there, must be like that. Not distant and disengaged and uninvolved, but positively sadistic, vindictive, capricious, out together. And again, you can understand why people would make that kind of conclusion. And yet what I want to say today is that neither of those pictures of God, the deist God, where God is watching us from a distance, or the Gary Larson God, the smite God, where God is out to get us, neither of those comes anywhere near the picture of God that we get in the Bible. Neither of those comes anywhere near the picture of God that we get in the person and in the life of Jesus. And it's that picture of God that I want to invite you to explore today. Because you might find yourself, if you've adopted 
one of those images of the God is watching us, Deus God, or the Gary Larson God of his computer smart God, you might find yourself rejecting that God. And that would be fair enough. Neither of those gods is a very attractive God. What I, want to, what I hope to show you today is that if you're rejecting one of those gods, you're not rejecting the God of the Bible. You're not rejecting the God we know in Jesus. You're rejecting some other God, and in fact you're rejecting a God that Jesus and the Bible itself would reject. Let me show you what I mean. We're going to work our way slowly through some key passages from Matthew's Gospel. Matthew, one of the four biographies of Jesus that we have in the New Testament in the Bible. And what I want you to see here is that in Jesus, God is not distant or vindictive, but God is with us. That's where Matthew starts his Gospel here in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. You might know the story, it's a very famous Christmas story of how a young woman named Mary who is engaged a young man named Joseph finds herself to be pregnant. And Joseph, when he finds out about this, thinks it's a scandal and prepares to uh, break off the engagement. And yet an angel appears to him and explains to him what's going on. Mary is not pregnant because she has been sleeping around. Mary is pregnant by a miracle. God has created this life in her. And if you've got a deist idea of God, that God is distant and watching us and, and, and not involved and disengaged from the world, you think that's a crazy idea that God would create a miracle like that. And yet if you know the God of the Bible, it's not a surprise at all because the God of the Bible from beginning to end is deeply involved in his world. Making the sun rise every day and sending the rain feeding the birds and feeding the animals and giving us life and breath and everything. That's the God of the Bible. And so that God should do this kind of miraculous thing. It's not a surprise at all. It's the kind of thing he does. And so here we have Mary, pregnant, about expecting a baby. And the end of that story, Matthew, the writer of this biography of Jesus, summarises like this. He says, All of this took place to fulfil what the Lord had said through the prophets. He's quoting from an Old Testament book, the book of Isaiah, from the Hebrew Scriptures. And it says this, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means, we're told, God with us. Here's Matthew's conclusion to this remarkable story about the conception and then the birth of Jesus. His conclusion is that somehow, miraculously, God is embodied in this baby. Somehow, remarkably, God has come to live in our world, with us. God is with us. That's the name that's given to this baby. That's what he embodies. That's who he is. And as you keep reading through Matthew's Gospel, the story of Jesus' life, you've got to read it, therefore, as the story of God with us. That's how Matthew has introduced it for us. That's how we're meant to understand everything that happens in Jesus' life. Everything he does and says and speaks. This is a story of God with us. God in human flesh. God not distant and disengaged. God not vindictive. God up close and personal. God with us. It's not surprising at the beginning to the story like that, that as we keep reading through this life of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, that Jesus begins to teach about God in very personal 
involved terms. He talks about God as his father. He talks about God as the one who sends the rain and who makes the grass grow and who feeds the birds. He talks about God as the one who sustains life. Uh, even at one point he says, God is the one who knows the number of hairs on your head. Here's a God, according to Jesus, who's not out there and distant and disengaged, but right here. God is present. God who understands and knows. And you might think that Jesus teaches like that because he, he lived a sheltered life. Uh, maybe it's easy to think about God like that in such positive terms as a father who cares if you've lived a sheltered life and you haven't really suffered anything difficult, if you don't really know about pain. Uh, they say that this generation of kids is going to be the bubble wrap generation. You know, bubble wrap where you, you get on the package and you pop the bubbles. Uh, I've got a nice phone app now where you've got to pop, pop as many bubbles as you can in a minute. Great fun. Uh, they talk about this generation uh, as the bubble wrap generation, the kids still growing up. Why? Because their parents have kind of wrapped them up in bubble wrap. Uh, and I'm not letting them experience difficulties and pain. Uh, I'm not letting them experience hardship out of care and concern for them, out of love, and therefore these kids are growing up sheltered and without resilience. That's what they're saying. But whether that's true or not, I don't know. But it might make you think, maybe that's why Jesus is so positive about God, because he's been bubble-wrapped by God. He's been sheltered from pain and difficulty, and that's why he can say such positive things about God as his Father. But if you keep reading through the story in Matthew, you see it, that couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus is not sheltered and, uh, and cut off from the realities, the harsh realities of life in the world. No, he experiences them head on. Let me take you through just a few of them. Right at the very beginning of his life, here in the second chapter of Matthew's story, while Jesus is still an infant, some wise men, this is the, the Magi, the wise men from the Christmas, Christmas story, they come to Jerusalem seeking for Jesus and they inquire of King Herod, Herod the First, Herod the Great, uh, who was ruling in Judea at that time as a client king of the Romans. And they inquire of him and they say, where's, where's the king who's been born amongst the Jews? We've seen his star in the east and we've come to worship him. And Herod, who is jealous of any other claim to the throne, any other claim to kingship, sends them off on their way to try to find this one about whom kingship claims are being made secretly planning to kill the baby. And again, in the story, just as an angel appeared to Joseph earlier on to explain Mary's pregnancy, now an angel appears to Joseph in a dream, here it is, and says, get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And so as you keep reading the story, Jesus goes with Joseph and Mary and they flee to Egypt. And even as an infant, here's Jesus on the run, displaced, a refugee in a foreign land amongst people who speak a different language. And that's his childhood. Is Jesus bubble wrap? No way. That's where his life starts. And if you keep reading as Jesus grows up and he begins his work of teaching and uh, proclaiming that God is coming to be king, that God is about to regain, reclaim his world, what happens? Well, Jesus faces fierce opposition. He starts doing all sorts of remarkable things. He starts healing the sick and even raising the dead and casting out demons. And again, if you've got a deist picture of God, a God who is distant and uninvolved, who set up the world and now the world runs according to the laws of nature, then it's hard to make sense of these reports that we have in the Gospels about Jesus. 
But if you get inside the way the Bible sees the world, and you think about the God that we meet in the Bible, then these things are no surprise at all. Because the God that we see in Jesus is the God who made the world, who brought it into existence out of nothing in the beginning, the God who gives life to it every day. And so these kinds of things are no surprise. These are just the kinds of things that that kind of God does. And so if Jesus does these things, he faces opposition. first one is fear. He's just cast out a demon. And while they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. And the crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees, the self-appointed religious leaders of the Jews at the time, the Pharisees say, it's by the prince of demons that he drives our demons. Here's Jesus going about doing his work in God's name and these self-appointed religious authorities label him as demon-possessed. That's pretty severe opposition. If Jesus bubble wrap, no way. Uh, it keeps going, it says, heals a man on the Sabbath, the Jewish holy day. And Jesus says to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just the sound of the other. But the Pharisees, this same group of self-appointed religious leaders, are upset with Jesus because he's healed on the Sabbath, on the holy days. He's violated their understanding of what that day should be about. And so they go out and they spot how Jesus might be killed. Is Jesus bubble wrap? Or he's born into a situation where as an infant he becomes a refugee. As soon as he begins his work in his adult life, he's labelled demon-possessed. Not long afterwards, there's a plot on his life and they plan to kill him. And that kind of stuff you could endure, you think, if you had the support of your friends. But as you keep reading through the story, you see exactly that's what Jesus loses. He's betrayed by one of his closest followers. Uh, the opposition to Jesus, led by the Pharisees and others, as, they, as, they, as, as the opposition rises and they plan to arrest Jesus and have him killed, they, they seek for a way to arrest him. They need to do that secretly because Jesus is popular with the crowd. They need to do it by night. And so they find a way to convince one of Jesus' closest followers to betray Jesus, to show them where he is staying at night so that they can arrest Jesus under the cover of darkness. And that's what happens with Judas here. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived and with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. They're out on the Mount of Olives, just outside the capital city of Jerusalem. It's night. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. He said, the one I kiss. A customary sign of friendship, of relationship, of greeting in this culture at this time. Now the one I kiss is the man arrest him. And going to Jesus at once, Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. Greetings, Rabbi, he said, and kissed him. So here's Jesus displaced and rejected and betrayed by one of his closest followers. Is Jesus bubble wrapped? Is Jesus distant and uninvolved? No way. He's here in the midst, in the mess, amidst the difficulties, feeling the pain. You see that uh, as the story continues even more intensely, for it's not just one of Jesus' disciples who betrays him. But, but another next, uh, a man by the name of Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends and followers, one of an inner circle of three that Jesus had gathered around himself. Jesus is arrested, he's taken to the chief priests of the Jews 
and they mock him there and they spit in his face and they stri- strike him with their fists and others slap him, mocking him, saying, prophesy to us, Messiah who hit you. And Peter, it's one of Jesus' closest friends, is outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl comes up to him and says, you were also with him, weren't you? Aren't you a Galilean like him? But he denied it before them all. And here Jesus is disowned at his moment of need by one of his closest friends. I don't know what you're talking about, he said, and Peter does that three times. And it's not just Judas, it's not just Peter, but all of the twelve. There's this whole band, they give up on him. They split, they flee. They abandon him when he needs them most. And so Jesus is handed over to Pilate, the Roman governor, and even though Pilate can find no basis for any charge against Jesus, Jesus is sentenced to death as a common criminal. Why? Because Pilate is put under pressure by the chief priests and the rulers of the Jews who want Jesus executed because they're jealous of his popularity. And so though Pilate can find no charge against him, he's executed as a common criminal by crucifixion. Crucifixion is something hard for us to imagine. It's, uh, it's more gruesome than anything we see, uh, commonly at least, in the modern world. It's a method of execution by torture. It was invented by the Assyrians and by the Persians and it's perfected by the Romans. And it's designed, explicitly designed, to inflict maximum pain on the person who's been tortured. The person is strung up on a cross with nails through their wrists and through their ankles and as they go delirious from the blood loss, eventually they suffocate, they asphyxiate because of the blood that runs into their lungs and they're unable to breathe. And here Jesus is crucified in that way. And ask yourself if Jesus bubble wrap, if Jesus distant from the pain and the difficulty of our world. No way. He's experiencing it at its utmost. It's not just the physical pain, of course. It's also the, the relational shame. Jesus is strung up there. You see the pictures, usually he's got a loincloth about his waist. But more likely, he was completely naked. Because the whole point of this method of execution is to shame the person, to put the criminal up on display. Often they are executed at busy crossroads, major highways, where everyone would pass by and throw insults at them. And therefore this kind of execution would act as a deterrent to others who might rebel against the Roman authorities in the same way. And that's Jesus there, suffering on the cross. And not only that, but God, in whom Jesus the whole way through had put his trust. God let him die. And so, as we heard read, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. He's speaking in Aramaic, his natural language, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's remarkable about this whole story, which was rushed through all too quickly, is that Matthew introduces this story for us, like we saw at the beginning, as the story of God with us. And so you ask yourself the question, is God watching us from a distance? Is God disengaged and uninvolved in the pain of the world? The answer's got to be no way, at least Matthew's answer, at least the Bible's answer. God is not like that. I hope you can see the significance of that. It means if you have been displaced in some way and feel alone 
If you have been betrayed by friends, or rejected by people in authority, or misunderstood by people you're trying to help, if you have suffered physical pain, and eventually, which we all will, if you face death, when you do that, God is not distant from you. God knows exactly what that is like, because in the person of Jesus, he has been there with us in it. Maybe you've never thought about God like that before. Uh, maybe you're here today and that's the first you've heard of that kind of description of God. Uh, if it is, that's a, not a surprise really. Because Christianity, based on these stories in the Bible, is utterly unique in the world in conceiving of God like this. A God who would come out of his way to suffer for people. Uh, Islam even goes so far as to deny Jesus' death on the cross. Uh, if you look in the Quran, the Muslim holy book, in Surah 4, the death of Jesus on the cross is denied and there's a logic to it. There's a reason to it. And it's a logic and a reason that you can really understand. The reason is, Jesus is a prophet of God, so the Quran teaches. And how on earth could God allow one of his prophets to suffer in that way? And so according to the Quran, these reports in the Gospels, these reports in the Bible must be serious, they must be corrupted, they can't be reliable because... God couldn't possibly let one who is representing him suffer like that. And there you see that there's all the difference in the world between the way Islam thinks about God, and not just Islam, but Buddhism and Hinduism and Sikhism and any other religious system that you can think of, including Jaism that I introduced at the beginning. There's all the difference in the world in how those ways of thinking about God understand who God is and the God that we meet in the pages of the Bible and in the face of Jesus. Because the God we meet in the pages of the Bible in the face of Jesus is a God who is with us, a God who has suffered and died. My uh, wife works uh, as a nurse in the dialysis unit at St. George Hospital down in Cogger. Uh, dialysis is for people whose kidneys are failing. And uh, the patients she has, most of them are there year in, year out, for many years. She's known someone for 15 years while she's been working there. Uh, and they're there waiting, they have three treatments a week, where they come in and they, they hook them up onto a machine and they take the blood out, it goes through the machine, the machine filters their blood because their kidneys can't do that anymore because their kidneys are failed, failed, and the blood comes back in, uh, having been filtered. And they spend three, four, five hours a day, three days a week, having their blood filtered like this. And so you can imagine the one thing that people in that situation want is a kidney transplant, right? that will get them out of this mess. And one of the most beautiful things that my wife tells me about that she interacts with her patients is that every now and then, every now and then you get a family member for one of these patients, a brother or a sister or a mother, sometimes a son or a daughter, who volunteers their own kidney for a transplant. You can live with just one kidney. And yet, my wife tells me, the transplant operation is so much more painful for the person giving up the kidney. So they've got to dig in and pull it out of all of the connections that it has. I don't understand the details of that, but you can understand that that's complicated. And that operation is so much more painful for the person who's giving up the kidney than for the person who is receiving it. And every time I hear one of those stories, I think, wow, isn't that beautiful? There is somebody voluntarily going out of their way suffering in their own body for the sake of somebody else they love. 
And when you think about it like that, that is, that is a very small picture of the picture of God that we get in the pages of the Bible, the picture of God that we see in the face of Jesus. God is not, according to the Bible, out there and distant and disengaged and uninvolved. He's not watching us from a distance. No, he put the body of his own son on the line out of love and concern for us. What if God understood your pain? I hope you can see at least from the point of view of Matthew's Gospel. It's not a myth. God does because he's been there. He's experienced it. He's suffered and died. So there's something even more remarkable going on here because I just want to touch on briefly as we finish. Because if you ask yourself the bigger question, why on earth would God allow that to happen? What is going on in this story? This is a, a very strange thing, it seems, for God to do. And Matthew's got an answer for that as well. I put it on the sheet under the last heading. God saving us in Jesus. Where also at the very beginning of the Gospel, alongside the other name that Jesus gets, God with us, is this one. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. You see, what the life and especially the death of Jesus teaches us is that pain, suffering, is not the deepest part of the problem with the world. It's the bit we feel the most because when painful things come into our lives, we know about them. But it's not the deepest part of the problem with the world. The problem with the world, according to Matthew's Gospel here, is that people are trapped in what he calls sin. He's talking about the reality that all of us, from the very beginning, have turned our backs on the God who made us, decided to go our own way without him, and have therefore led the whole world into ruin, in rejection against the God who made us. What Matthew's talking about there when he talks about sin is the fact that we're not just victims of suffering, of pain, of difficulty in the world, but we're also responsible. We're also culpable. We're also active. We're part of the problem with the world, far from being part of the solution that we'd like to think we are. And because of all that, from from the Bible's point of view, God should, by rights, have given up on us and abandoned us. And with that context, when you come to the story of Jesus on the cross and you hear him crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Suddenly you can understand what's going on there. Here is Jesus taking on himself responsibility for the heart of the problem, the problem of our rejection of God. Here is Jesus standing in our place and experiencing God's forsakenness, the God forsakenness that each of us deserve because of the way we've rejected the God who made us. And so the story of Jesus is such good news. Not just because it tells us that God is with us in the pain. Not just because it tells us that God sympathises in the suffering. But more than that, deeper than that, bigger and better than that, it tells us that God has done something about the root cause of pain in the world. God has dealt with our sin when Jesus bore the consequences of it as he died on the cross. And so in Jesus we can see that God not just doesn't just sympathise, he saves. The story doesn't end there, of course, does it? If you keep reading through Matthew's Gospel, you get to the very last chapter and you see that God raises Jesus from the dead. 
we've heard, heard the story from the beginning uh, in the story of Christmas right through to the end with the story of Easter when God raises Jesus from the dead. And what's happening there is that God is demonstrating that he didn't abandon Jesus to death. But Jesus, having borne the consequences of our rejection of God, is vindicated by God. He's given new life out the other side of the grave. Again, maybe you're here today and you've never thought about God in those terms. And like I said, if that's you, that wouldn't be a surprise. Our culture has real difficulty thinking about God in those terms. The major religions of the world have real difficulty thinking about God in those terms. The Christian Bible is unique in presenting God in those terms. And yet, what, what if God really is like that? What if God really does understand your pain? That was our question. What if God not just understands it, but has done something about the root cause of it? Wouldn't that be the kind of God that you could believe in? Wouldn't that be the kind of God that you would entrust your whole life to? That's what I want to invite you to do today. So you may not be ready to do it right now. But I hope that I've enticed you at least a little bit. Uh, if you haven't thought about God in this way before, that the God you meet in the Bible, the God you meet in the face of Jesus, is a God at least worth investigating. And that's what I want to, to challenge you to do in the next days and weeks and months ahead. I'll be here over afternoon tea if you want to chat. And I'm sure if you come uh, with a Christian friend, then they'd love to chat about it as well, and they can suggest some ways that uh, they can help you investigate these things. Thanks, Richard. Uh, yeah.